Hi, everyone. It's Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, unfiltered conversations with the business and cultural leaders who shape the world we live in. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Lion Tree, the global investment and merchant bank. For more insightful content, including our podcasts, newsletters, and events, and to get in touch with us, search for Kindred Media wherever you're listening to this. Hey everyone, I'm Howard Hahn, and I help lead Merchant Bank Ant Lion Tree. Today on KinderCast, I'm joined by the CEO and co-founder of Get Your Guide, Johannes Reck. I've had the pleasure of getting to know Johannes for the past couple of years, and in 2020, we were fortunate to invest in the company alongside close relationships of the firm like KKR, Tomasek, and Searchlight. Based in Berlin, Get Your Guide is one of the leading marketplaces in digitalizing the global experiences market. Travelers from over 170 countries have booked more than 45 million tours, activities, and attractions through the platform. The company has a global team of over 550 travel experts and has offices in 14 countries around the world. Johannes is a biochemist by trade, a vocal leader in the German and European tech ecosystem, a classically trained musician, and a good friend of the firm. Johannes, great to see you. Thank you for doing this. Well, thank you so much for having me. We've spent a lot of time together, and I really would love for you to share more about the founding story with Tao and start us from the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. I'll take you back to 2008 originally when Tao and I were both students at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. He was studying physics and I was studying biochemistry, and we just both loved to travel, but we didn't have any money to do so. So what we did is we set up this student club called ETH, Model United Nations. You're probably familiar with yeah, the concept yeah. of Model United yeah. Nations in the US. Yeah. So it's basically, you know, students can be diplomats and you get together, you know, for a big conference once a year. And that conference, when we set up the club, happened to be in Beijing and we got funding from the university to go there. So I booked my airfare to go to Beijing and I made a mistake and I ended up being in Beijing a day early and Tao and the rest of the group came one day later. And Beijing at that time was not amenable for tourists. So I virtually had a lot of trouble to even get to the hotel. And when I was there, I couldn't find anything to do for the rest of the day. You know, I was stuck in my hotel room. Then what happened is the next day Tao came, he picked me up, he became my tour guide. And the city opened up and suddenly so many great experiences were unlocked. We had the best Beijing duck. We saw the summer palace. We saw the forbidden city and we would have all of these great stories. We'd meet with locals. So it was just a completely different experience. Those were the heydays of Web 2.0. Everyone wanted to build a travel community or like some sort of network where people could exchange information. So we thought, we're technologists. Why don't we launch something ourselves? Not so hard to do. We can just have like a social network for travelers to be guides or to travel and book guides around the world. And that's how Get Your Guide came to play. And we launched the original prototype of the website of what would later become Get Your Guide in late 2008. And we thought that our target market would be students from universities just like us. Right. And over the course of two years, I think we signed up something like 200 students and had an aggregate of five bookings, out of which three was my mother because she took pity in our, <laughs> in our little student project. So I'd say the first version was very entrepreneurial. We did everything ourselves. We didn't spend wow. any money, but it wasn't very successful. However, what happened back then was that us not having any idea about tourism whatsoever, just by sheer luck, hit on this massive experiences market where you had hundreds of thousands of professional 
experienced creators around the world, from people who run buses to the pyramids of Cairo, all the way to the Eiffel Tower that you just mentioned, or the Louvre Museum, or the local ski lift in Switzerland. We got a ton of emails from these type of suppliers who wrote us and said, you guys are really good at technology. Your website looks great. Can you do the same thing for us? Mm. And can we list on your website? And for me, like really dawned when one of these guys sent me this $200 PayPal payment and said, I want to be listed. How can I be fast-tracked? I was like, this is more than we ever made with our current models. So there has to be a market there. And this was really epic. Rented this vacation rental in the summer of 2009 in Tuscany with a group of friends, drank a lot of wine and wrote the original business plan of Get Your Guide. And I still look at it from time to time today. And it was incredible because it was in a way very visionary. We kind of like wrote out what the future of this market should be and how technology could enable all of these suppliers to actually have a worldwide presence towards customers and how we could help them market their products. And we then relaunched the website in January 2010. The second time around, it immediately caught fire. So we immediately had bookings. You know, we had, I don't know, so like 20, 30 bookings the first month, then 500 the second month, and then so like just steadily went up. The problem was, though, that we were a bunch of young students with no job experience in Switzerland, which is arguably one of the most expensive places in the world. And we couldn't even pay our own lunch. And there was no funding available back then whatsoever. So we scrambled together, you know, a couple of loans from parents and friends and families. And so I got this grant from a local bank, which had this pioneer entrepreneurship program. It was really difficult. That's also something that I look back to and would say those were probably the hardest days. We didn't know whether we could survive. Every day was like constant fighting for a survival. We were doing everything ourselves. I was doing customer service on my smartphone, which was rerouted from Skype 24-7. We always joke we have 24-7 customer service because we were always able to pick up calls. Right. We're doing sales. We're programming the website. One of the co-founding group was doing the design. So it was very, very stressful. But what that enabled us ultimately is to have a really deep grasp of the business and the industry because we literally were so deep into the project. And that period carried on for two, three years, actually, until we hit something like 10 million in gross merchandise value that was transferred through our websites of something like two, two and a half million. But was that was that before? Well, what's interesting, there's so many early investors who really regret not investing in your company. I mean, it's pretty clear now, given your size and scale. Were you already raising outside capital at that point or was this before that time period? So I think two things. One, we were really bad at raising money. We had no idea how that worked. And we were so focused on our product. We were like constantly working, right? right <laughs> we didn't right, have a lot right. of time to do anything else. And second, people cannot imagine this today, but back then, venture capitalists really only wanted to bet on companies that basically had no downside risk. So if you were a first-time founder or if you were in a market that was not already fully validated, meaning that there was a U.S. company that was doing exactly the same and it was already massively successful, it was really difficult to raise any funding. And that's also why our first investment in 2013 came from Spark Capital, a US American venture firm, sure. and not from a German venture firm, because they were the first ones to actually take the bet on a new product in a new market that was not seen before exactly like other industries where people you know like Groupon, where they just copied something locally in Germany and it was just a knockoff right. and was easy to fund. Did you find them? They found you? Where was the magical connection? 
I actually earned the highest frequent flyer status on Lufthansa that you can get just by <laughs> flying economy class back and forth to the US and literally visiting every single Sandhill Road investor. At the time, I was, you know, as I just explained, like we were doing everything ourselves. You know, at that time, we had like maybe 20 employees, most of which were interns or like very low paid people. And I was literally flying over for partner meetings on Mondays. We'll be back in the office on Tuesday. It was just wild and all of that in economy class. Right, right. <laughs> it was pretty brutal. Spark, we only met a couple of months into our first real fundraise, but they immediately liked it. Alex Finkelstein, who's the partner who ended up doing the deal, just called up a couple of suppliers and then he immediately realized what the potential was. It's surprising that you say you're not good at raising money. I've seen you do it. It's quite masterful. So not to embarrass you, but it's amazing to see, to think back to when you weren't where you are today. So bringing fast forward today, I've seen your offices. They're quite remarkable. How has the vision played out over the past decade since you started? So I think for me personally, one of the really transformational points in the journey was we went then from when we raised that first round from racks to riches, and we raised a total of $14 million as a Series A round in 2013, which at the time in Europe was unprecedented. That was a lot of money. And after that, we made all of the mistakes. We hired the wrong people. We spent too much on marketing. So like the company was really in trouble. Our burn rate went up like crazy. We were like just bootstrap burning minimal capital. And then suddenly we had millions of dollars of burn for not very great things. We were actually starting to sink a little bit, I would say, in retrospect. And it was a very tough time. And back then, I just felt helpless. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. This is just all bad. I don't know how to hire the right people. And my team doesn't feel good. So it was just all not good. And then something magical happened. And through a connection, I was introduced to Case Colon, who's the founder of Booking.com and was also, I think, one of the earliest investors in Uber and mentor of Travis Kalanick in the early days. And Case called me up one Friday night, I'll never forget that, and basically said, I want to meet you in your office tomorrow morning. Are you ready for that? And I was like, OK. And then we basically didn't leave the room for like two consecutive days. We literally went through every single piece of data that I could give him. He then took it upon him, A, to invest, and then also to coach me and mentor me. And that was the transformational moment for me where I really learned not to just follow the business or fight fires, but really create a strategy that ultimately also investors could rally behind later. But I think raising the cash is just a function of having a vision and a strategy. I know the past couple of years, global travel has been impacted in a couple of different ways. Curious your thoughts on how you've worked around that. I know you're seeing already massive growth this year, but certainly it's been a tough couple of years for travel. Yeah, it was quite interesting. After these initial struggles, we ended up from 2014 to 2020, we doubled the business every single year. Still remember, you know, January, February 2020, I felt invincible. We had just raised a massive round from SoftBank Vision Fund and Temasek. So, you know, tier one investors, the business was killing it. I felt like for the first time, the pressure was relieved and like, you know, things were just flowing. And then we had this board meeting in Zurich and Tomasek, which is the Singaporean pension fund, flew in and said, Johannes, you really have to take a very close look on what's happening with COVID in Asia. Interesting. And I was like, oh, don't worry, guys. I've seen crises before. I've right. managed this. I'm like, nothing can bother me. And sure enough, three weeks later, our revenue was at zero. And wow. we were in the gravest crisis you could ever imagine. Our industry, the tourism industry was really damaged. And we were even more damaged within the tourism industry because our product is not even been allowed to sell in a lot of places, like a lot of attractions, museums, tours had to shut down. Certainly, yeah. So that was really something. 
ironically, because I've been a founder and I've been through all these ups and downs before, it didn't affect me personally as much. I knew we have a good cash cushion, we'll go through this and there will be light at the end of the tunnel and travel will come back. It's a fundamental human need. Maybe it's going to be gone for like one year, two years, right. three years, who knows. But You like, didn't no. doubt it. You were like, it's coming back. A hundred percent. And I had the vision from day one of COVID that there's a massive opportunity in this thing, that it will be a consolidation of the market. And at the same time, it will be an acceleration coming out of COVID because digital is going to win in the long run. And so like all of the old clunky businesses that were around at least before COVID, they are going to go away. Right. And like most people don't realize, but 50% of travel is still being booked offline. And our industry was even more than 50% because a lot of people queued up for the Eiffel Tower, queued up for the Louvre Museum. And that was actually our biggest competition. And it was clear to me that there was an opportunity in COVID that that would change. And that's also what we're seeing now coming out on the other end. But it was rough for the employees. So the interesting thing about COVID, it was the, the biggest crisis was actually to motivate employees for two years to work mm. for a company that was really just being beaten down. And we did a pretty good job, I would say, you know, so like in the first six to nine months, but it got really hard then in 2021 when we had the alpha wave and then the delta right. wave and then the Omicron wave. And at some point, we're just like, you know, this will never stop. Right? <laughs> so right, like, right. You know, this will just keep on going. But Thankfully, we made a couple of good innovations during COVID. One was we started to offer a very generous salary for shares program so that we could keep cash and save on salaries while employees could be incentivized through stock. And 98% of our workforce actually accepted that and on average cut their salaries by 30%, which really humbled me. We didn't Got it. give a number. But Meaning you know, they would defer cash to take equity. 100%. Right? So they're, long -ter they're thinking long-term betting on the company. Which is right? great. And that has led among all of the senior leadership of the company, top 50 people, we had no attrition. Wow. So everyone has stayed. And the second thing that it allowed us to do um, is because we didn't have to do massive layoffs because of that program, we could basically double down on product and engineering. So we really worked hard on improving our product, both on the inventory side where suppliers obviously were struggling for demand and were very creative and happy to do new deals with us and help us accelerate out of the pandemic. But we also worked on the core tech product and now coming out of COVID have been able to double our conversion rate, for instance, you know, just right, one right. leading metric. So it's been a time of struggle, but it's also been a time of massive opportunity. And now the market is 50% under pre-COVID levels. We're already at double of pre-COVID wow. levels globally. So I'm super pumped about the future. I mean, what's also really interesting because a lot of the, maybe all the experience providers on your network, they're mom and pops, they're small businesses. And certainly in the past couple of years, small businesses overall have been impacted greatly. What's interesting is they can use your product to find new business. They can drive a lot more business by working with you versus before they didn't really have another option. They had to stand outside and hope people walk up to them. We have grown a lot of these businesses to scale. And that's also something that I'm really proud of, that we were able to give back so much to the local community and that we're being able to fund so many jobs, particularly in developing countries. And you can imagine like a, a lot of tourism that goes to places like Southern America, or, you know, Africa or Asia. Those folks really benefit from a service like ours where they can create a good customer experience, really earn money and feed their families and invest in education. So that's really great. That's also why I'm so happy to see that now that COVID is over, that the consumer behavior comes back, that people actually travel to these places. I think this is something in the entire tragedy of COVID that we've really missed in the Western world. We've been very much focused on our own countries and obviously the horrific death toll that it's taken in our countries, but we have missed 
how much money typically flows from tourism into these emerging economies and how much we've been hurting these economies by not traveling. Totally, totally. Recently, large US-based tech companies like Google and Apple have announced permanent return to work. How are you managing through that? How do you think about that? Both your teams, yourself, your customers are also obviously starting to return to work as well. Yeah, so I don't think that's a wrong or right solution to this. And I think the debate has been very religious and I'm always suspicious of these type of religious debates where you know there's this binary view of the world. I try to build our future of work policy very much along our cultural values, because I think ultimately it's a cultural question. You know, what type of company do you want to be? I think you can be a great remote first company or remote only company. You can be a great in-person company. It's really about what's the type of culture that you want. I think we've always had a culture of freedom and responsibility where a lot of the decision-making authority is with the teams. I try to centralize as little as possible. I do believe that the leadership team needs to give a clear strategy. We need to be clearly defining the vision of the company, strategic goals and the top KPIs that we're chasing that support that strategy. So that's our job. But then I think a lot of the decision-making authority should be with the teams. And what I realized quickly is that different teams need very different work setups. Most obviously, the office team obviously needs to be in the office, right? <laughs> so right, it right, doesn't right. really work if they, they work right. from home. On the flip side, if you look at the developer enablement team, I mean, those guys have purely contact with developers, most of which work remotely, so they don't really need to be in the office as a team. So we have the full spectrum, and we leave it up to the managers ultimately mm. to decide. And we have flipped our offices now into hot desking with specific areas and a lot of meeting rooms that allow for hybrid meetings. We said this is going to be an experiment. We'll be iterating. We don't believe anyone has the right answer to remote or not remote at this point. And you know, we'll try to find the best setup for us. But I think the reality is you need both. You do need a remote because you will not be able to staff and scale in this modern workplace if you don't offer it. On the flip side, I don't think that you get to the same level of trust between the different teams, particularly in a very cross-functional organization like ours, where you have sales and customer service and product UX and engineering without being co-located at least for some time in the month. So you let managers decide? Just purely principles. We huh. set three key principles. Right. Number one, we believe in infrequent in-person interaction to build trust. We believe that collaborative work, so true collaborative work where you need multiple people in the room and you know, multiple voices, multiple opinions should be done in person if possible. Mm -hmm. While focus work, just getting stuff done can be done from anywhere. Do you have a, I'm sure you do, splits of where different teams end up percentage-wise or yeah, so I think trends we'll, you're seeing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, we're monitoring it and ultimately it becomes you know, an engineer like myself you know, <laughs> loves this. It right. becomes an optimization problem now. We're seeing roughly 30, 35 percent office occupancy on every given day obviously very much depends by team also depends by manager but that's okay because i think individual preferences will also be vastly different so people can also then make a decision on which team they want to join based on how much remote do they do versus how much in person because there's also a misconception that for instance all of the engineers want to do only remote they're also engineers who really like to be in person as you probably know in-person interaction is also really important for our mental health so totally. I don't think it's black and white. And I think you need to have a very flexible framework, which offers a lot of opportunity to your employees, yet still maximizes the outcome for the company. Seeing you in Berlin, I think it might be my first work trip when we came. 
We had a meeting in person in the office. That was fun. I had not done that in a really long time before I saw you. Yeah, like my entire senior team actually came back to the office already in 2021. And like Makes you know, sense. we were hanging yeah. out together quite a bit, particularly at this executive leadership group where you make such big decisions that impact one another. It's just really important to have this deep level of trust and to renew that deep level of trust so that you're also capable of having really tough conversations. I have to say just my qualitative experience is on Zoom, you typically have a lot of very very focused conversations about very topical things. But for instance, you don't have very controversial discussions on Zoom. You don't really push yourself or others on Zoom. And I believe that's also important in an executive context. Again, something obviously very topic-oriented, but that type of discussion, that challenging discussion is really Why? important. I think you're right, by the way. I'm just like thinking about it right now. I think Zoom is hard to have a debate. It's kind of hard well, to do that. Well, you're not co-located, so you don't pick up on all of the signals. For instance, one way of giving tough feedback is that you actually give it while having a very positive body expression, but you can't have that on Zoom because you're kind of this little square. So your feedback will be perceived very different. The same reason why I personally really dislike giving very constructive feedback via email because it's always going to be misunderstood because on mm -hmm. email, it's always like very direct, typically offending people. While I can tell you personally, that same feedback will be okay because you'll see, I like you. So like, this is nothing against you personally. This right. is just a feedback on how you can improve. Right, right. So do you end up doing a lot of these brainstorming sessions. I found that's pretty good in person. It really depends, I think, also on your leadership style, what works in person, what does not work in person. I really like these open discussions, brainstorming, creative work in person. That's just the way how I prefer it because the energy just sparkles a lot more. We also do quarterly strategic reviews in person, which is great. I really like all hands meetings in person. You know, it's right. better than via Zoom. We do those hybrid, but you know, it's just better to have the room full and that energy. Ironically, I also really love one-on-ones in person much mm -hmm. more than via Zoom for exactly the same reason that we just discussed. I know you've been traveling a bit selectively. I'm curious, have you seen any difference in how they handle, let's call it future of work, Europe versus US or other places? Yeah, it's interesting. So I would say, ironically, Europe is actually further advanced on future of work than the US, which I think has to do with the fact that the more old school European companies basically don't have a future of work. They just <laughs> go back to the office, like a lot of them just push back to the office. And the people don't like it at all. So like, they go completely. They're just like, go back. Yeah, in. like COVID is over. We go back to the old world, essentially. And obviously, all of the more tech-oriented modern companies don't want to do that because they lose their very skilled employees. So ultimately, we've had to come up with a solution much earlier. I think also, you know, maybe so like because I'm from Germany, we just love policy and process and all of that to <laughs> be in place early so that there are no surprises right. and everyone is briefed and you had a proper bottom-up process to get there. To me, it feels like in the U.S., it's still like very clueless in most places. People are very remote here right now. A lot of people have also moved. We haven't had the same phenomenon in, in Europe. Like people have not really changed their cities here. Like that has happened a lot. So it feels like the going back to the office is a much bigger deal here that people are much more scared about. Yeah, looking forward to seeing what's coming up in the US and Silicon Valley over the next couple of months because clearly they also need to find a solution. Totally. You've also been just touching on the US-Europe contrast in some things. Clearly, Europe's leading in many areas. You touched on one. US is leading in um, many more areas. <laughs> right, right. I mean, climate, I'd say Europe's been leading for a bit. But you've also been a big advocate for innovation in both Germany and Europe. 
We've done deals in Germany where you have to get a notary. There's some process. I didn't realize that beforehand. It takes some time and it adds complexity versus investments in the US are straightforward, relatively. And you become a leader in that field, quite an outspoken advocate for mm -hmm. positive change. Mm -hmm. Just to share, what are some of the things you see that can be improved? I guess some of those lessons, maybe from the US or other places, can be learned. From. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot that we can learn from the US. And you know, that's not only Silicon Valley, by the way. Just to give you a story, I think that illustrates the differences in mentality that are underneath the surface of all of this. When we started the company, and I was just in the beginning of this podcast talking about how I was doing sales for Get Your Guide. I was doing it in New York, and I was doing it in Berlin, and I was doing it in Rome. And whenever I called up uh, you know, an attraction museum or a tour supplier in Europe, they would want to know, are you insured? How long have you been in business? Do you pay on time? What's the risk when I list with you? How much do I have to pay? And like all of these questions before we could even have a conversation whether we want to do business together. In the US, the conversation was always, is this your company? So you've been founding it? That's great. You're an entrepreneur. <laughs> That's amazing. Like, sign me up. I mean, like, sign me up. I want to be part of this. And this is going to be a big new thing, right? right? So like, you know, this is like digital tourism, you yeah, know, for yeah. destination services. I love it. You're the man. So like, can you help me? So like, you know, so can you tell me what to do? I want to be really big on your right, website. Right. I want to use this channel. How can we work together? This is the difference in tone. Particularly in Germany, we've had an incredible economic run over 50, 60 years. But a lot of the mindset of particularly my parents' generation was around preservation and not about innovation. You can see that throughout. You just mentioned the example of, you know, how we protect notaries and lawyers and how everything is very offline and expensive. But ultimately, that is just one symptom of the bigger problem that we're not willing to change processes mm. to make things better for our customers, and in that case, the customers being the young innovators, the young entrepreneurs, the people who drive GDP in the next 20, 30, 40 years and not in the next three, four, five, six. As painful as it sounds, because Germany has done so well, we haven't had the pressure to innovate. We've had a fantastic economy that was very much reliant on our great manufacturing businesses who were increasingly first exporting to the United States and then later had this fantastic Asian and particular Chinese market that they were selling into. And they were just growing every year and your profits were growing and you didn't need to change anything. It was working and everyone was employed and there was a big social security system and there was really no reason to change. Because I'm the next generation on and I could already see that manufacturing and just building cars, that's not going to be the future of our country. We need to get into software, otherwise we missed a boat. I was in disagreement with a lot of people who said this software thing, that's just like one small market. But that small market between 2009, 10, when we launched to today has grown very substantially today. Not many people doubt that anymore. And today there's a very high level of urgency, which has allowed my voice to be amplified along with the voice of many others. And thankfully, the result today is that as of today, we have record numbers in venture capital funding in Europe, you know, 3x of Asia in 2021, which is outstanding. This used to be a third of all of Asia just a couple of years ago. There's clearly a bright future, I think the thing that we have as an asset is we have incredible universities, Cambridge, Oxford, ETH Zurich, Munich, Kassel. They had lots of good tech universities. And most importantly, we now have role models and we have a lot of- Like you. Yeah, I tried, tried to play my part, but there are many, many role models that are not so like different fields. And I think the good thing is young people now really want to be entrepreneurs. And, you know, it's much cooler to be an entrepreneur than to be a consultant or an investment banker. Sorry, how I don't know. 
And that was like a very important breakthrough because when I got started, everyone was rolling their eyes at me and said, so like, why don't you go into consulting or like any safe job where you can make money? And today that's not seen the same way. And even my parents' generation, <laughs> including my parents, now right. understand that change is needed. We cannot continue the way it is. If the current events in Ukraine have any positive thing to them, then it is that I think that transformation of the European economy is even more desperately needed. And I think we'll be willing to take even greater risks. You've also been, I'm not sure how publicly, but you've been quite a successful seed investor. You've backed some great companies through your own capital, your network, your mentorship. I've met a lot of entrepreneurs through you. I'm appreciative, but I'm curious how you think that plays into this trend of the next generation. Yeah, my personal mission is to unlock incredible travel experiences for our get your guide customers. But even beyond that, I just want to unlock as much talent around me as possible. So when I work with entrepreneurs or when I fund businesses, it's really because I'm genuinely curious about their market and their personality and what they can do and how they can innovate something for customers and just have an impact on the world. And I found some fantastic businesses through that, whether that's an Avi Maya travel perk who's reinventing business travel, or you know, Christian Hecker, Trade Republic, who's reinventing how Europeans save money and sort of like invest in the stock market. For me, at the center of what I do is always the enablement of other people and passing on the knowledge that I've been fortunate to learn over the last 10 years. And at the same time, just improve the European continent through technology and innovation. I saw that you had accepted Dogecoin on Get Your Guide earlier, but I'm curious how you think about just given your standing as an entrepreneur, investor, leader, thoughts around Web3. If we're in the metaverse, do we need to go in person to the Eiffel Tower? Or are we just wearing headsets and not traveling? I'm super critical of the idea that we'll all be living in a matrix in a couple of years from now. People have been telling me that since 2010. 10 that we should just focus on smartphone enabled tours and not have tour guides etc we've tested this many many times huh. the conversion rate was abysmal people actually want to interact with other people, people want a person right? people want in person people want the guide surprisingly people want the <laughs> tour guide that's really important to them those are actually very well-paid jobs just because of that I do think there will be a place for more virtual reality definitely in gaming we're already seeing that today but I'm very skeptical that this is going to be black and white and we'll all travel in the metaverse. We, for instance, launched a you know, travel from home series. So a lot of tours on, on YouTube and professionally produced tours in the pandemic. And you could see that people were quick, briefly latching onto it. But then so like it was gone, essentially, the moment that they could travel again mm. and could really go somewhere. Not as good as a real thing. Not as good as the real thing. So I, I don't think that's going to happen. Web3 is an interesting thing. There's a lot going on in that space. I would say I'm definitely not the expert. What I would love to see in Web3 is a real application. I think if you think of Web1, you had an Amazon and you had eBay very early on. And despite those companies not being very economical in the beginning, there was a clear utility for the customer right away. In Web2 is the same thing. You also argue, you know, will Facebook ever be a big company or make a lot of money? But people were using it. The social networking was real. With Web3, I can see that potentially it could have an impact on the financial industry, for instance, or other, you know, the art industry, as we were discussing earlier. Right. But I haven't seen that true customer utility play out at scale yet in a way that really makes me think that this is something that will be a fundamental shift in society in the way how we write about it. I would love to see it. Very curious, but I would say I'm on the more skeptical side right now. Yeah, it does kind of remind me a little bit, Facebook would probably 
coming of age when we were playing with the internet. And some folks were like, what is this thing? Remember when people used to use anonymous names for email? Yeah. And you used to have like a screen name. Yeah. And then you have real names, right? Real yeah. identity. And then now around like Web3 or Discord, people are using anonymous names again. So it's kind of interesting how it's come back around. But I wonder if, th is this our version of, I don't get it because generationally this is just different? Totally. And I always slap myself in the face. And, you know, I also <laughs> want to make sure that I'm not suddenly becoming the old guy who's as skeptical <laughs> as the people that told us that we wouldn't succeed when we started Get Your Guide for right, all of the right. same reasons. I would say, though, that ultimately any type of technology needs to serve the customer in a meaningful way. And I think that's something that is still to be seen, you know, whether it's cryptocurrencies or NFTs. I think we're at the beginning of this movement. I think we'll only see the shakeout in the next five to 10 years. Definitely. Some quick hits, some recent trips you've taken, anything fun? This is my first post-COVID <laughs> <laughs> Not much to say. Before that, I just had car vacations with my family in Austria and Italy, which, to be honest, is not the worst thing in the world, sure. so I can't yeah. complain. <laughs> Amazing. Any recent book you've read? I know you're an avid reader. A lot of different topics. Love yeah. how you bring up yeah. science to me. I mean, it's like I'm always reading multiple books at the same time. I would say the one book, particularly in the current environment, I didn't know how topical it was when I read over the Christmas break, but it's called Papa, The Open Society and Its Enemies. And I think it's a very important read in the current times. Interesting. What's the quick one, two sentence? It's a philosophy book with many hundreds of pages, but I can give you the brief highlights. Karl Popper, who's an Austrian-born philosopher who emigrated first to the UK and then later to New Zealand during the Second World War, is, I would say, one of the leading philosophers of liberalism, same school as Hayek and others. That book is actually the study of how ultimately um, ideal society or like building up a society according to certain ideals or myths ends up in dictatorship and why we always need to go through the pain of actually having the discussions and also the dissent and the debate in liberal democracies and why that is actually healthy to preserve our society to share these different points of views even if we don't agree i think that's the very high level and he goes about this by having a longer critique of plato who's the big advocate of the model society where the philosophers rule and everyone else is subordinated but ultimately he derives very well that that will always end in tyranny and i think it's something that's quite topical for today Totally. Absolutely. Something you've watched lately. I don't know if you have time. Obviously, you're quite busy. and <laughs> I am, but I have to admit, my wife and I, we binge out every now and then. So the latest series we've seen was Succession. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah, we've seen it. Very dark one. We've seen it. Are you caught up or? I'm not. So like through it, I just saw season one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But okay. it was very depressing. What's your take? Why so depressing? Well, to me, when people just ruin the company for politics and they don't focus on customers, that just hurts me. <laughs> right, right. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for doing this. This was a lot of fun. It's uh, great. Thank you so much for philosophy, the history of the company. We're really grateful. You know, I totally agree. Europe, huge opportunity there. We're very bullish there. You've always guided us there as well. So we're super appreciative. I'm very happy to be part of the Lion Tree ecosystem. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app. 